You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. Swing a high fly ball left field, sending Brantley back onto the warning track at the wall, looking up, and it is gone! Anthony Rendon puts it into the Crawford boxes, and the Nationals lead the ball game 5-2 here in the seventh inning. That's how you respond to what happened. Yeah, what happened, we will get into in great detail today. What a game six And we have a Game 7. That was Dave Jagler on the call for Nationals Radio. I'm here. Aaron is here. No guests today. We're doing all Nats. And then we're going to do some Redskins. Because yesterday, leading into Game 6 last night, it was a very active Redskins day. And by the way, just a very Redskins day uh, overall uh, yesterday. So we will get to that as well. But we have a Game 7. And we have a Game 7 because Steven Strasburg, more than anything else, had one of the all-time great DC clutch performances. And by the way, let me just say this up front, and I'm trying not to be overly reactionary, um, not to, uh, to speak in hyperbole and gross exaggeration, but I've lived here my entire life, and I have some perspective on this. I think, I think Steven Strasburg has become... Uh, along with Rigo in particular, the best postseason clutch performer in D.C. sports history, period. I mean, that's what you have in Steven Strasburg now, who has pitched four elimination do-or-die games and won all four of them in the postseason. And last night was a brilliant performance, one that will go down all time for him. I don't know if it matches the game at Wrigley because statistically the line wasn't as good. He had 12 strikeouts, no earned runs in that one. But I think after the first inning last night, his performance was incredible. And we learned a lot about that first inning, which we will get into. There's so much to get into from that game. Um, I did want to start with a couple of of just uh, tidbits, if you will. Do you know that tonight's seventh and deciding game for a world championship will be just the fourth time in D.C. sports history that any of its major pro sports teams will participate and play a seventh game for a championship? All right, 1924, the Senators with Walter Johnson won game seven of the World Series over the New York Giants 4-3 to in 12 innings. You remember that one, everybody? Griffith Stadium, 1924. The following year... The next year in 1925, the Senators went to a seventh and deciding game in the World Series against the Pirates at Forbes Field and lost that game, all right, nine to seven. By the way, Aaron, I was looking some of this up late last night. That nine to seven game seven in 1925 to the Pirates was played in two hours and 31 minutes. You know, you just didn't have, and by the way, that's a lot of runs. You know, that's a lot of offense, a lot of at-bats, two hours and 31 minutes. Um, Then the other seventh and deciding game for a title was 1978, and I remember this one. The Bullets on the road in Seattle in the seventh and deciding game of the NBA Finals in 1978, and them coming up big and winning on the road 105-99 to for Washington's only NBA title. That's the list until tonight. All right. The ultimate in sports is a game seven. And the ultimate of the ultimate is a game seven for a title. This will be the fourth time that will happen. And by the way, uh, could it, is it possible that we will have a seven game series without one home win? 
Last night, here's another little tidbit fun fact to know and tell. Aaron, in the three major sports that play seven-game series, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, there have been, since they started doing this, 1,460 seven-game series in those three sports. None of them have had what happened last night, and that is the road team winning for a sixth consecutive time. Incredible. Uh, Tonight... Could it be a seventh game without a home winner? It could be. We're going to preview the game, but we got a lot to talk about in terms of a recap of Game 6 first. Quick uh, mention, uh, we have an app now. Uh, if you'd like to download our app and listen to us that way, you can do that uh, via the App Store on your iPhone or the Google Store on your Android. Uh, rate us and review us on that app. That will help a lot. Uh, and if you have any issues with it, just tweet me at Kevin Sheehan, DC. All right, to me, there's just a lot to go through, but I'm going to start with my five takeaways. Uh, and Aaron, you jump in whenever you want. My number one takeaway from last night is Strasburg. He did it again. You know, he pitched last night into the ninth inning in a game six, down three three games to two. And he allowed two earned runs, five hits, seven strikeouts with the two earned runs coming in the first inning, which, by the way, he told everybody afterwards he was tipping his pitches. I had Ray Knight on the show earlier uh, on the radio show. Ray Knight essentially said um, what he was doing is that when he wasn't throwing a fastball, he was getting his grip in his glove ready for either the changeup or the curve And that extra time spent in his glove was a tip that a fastball was not coming. So they knew they could eliminate the fastball when they saw him working his hand in his glove to get the right grip to throw the curve or the changeup. And that was the tip. Apparently Strasburg, and he said he's been guilty of doing this in the past, not intentionally, obviously. And at the end of the first inning... Paul Menhart, the pitching coach, said, took him aside and said, you're tipping your pitches. And then after that, Strasburg went to shuffling his hand in his glove and so on every pitch so that there was no tip. Now, interestingly, and Ray Knight pointed this out, what they were waiting for last night is they were waiting for a fastball. And when he wasn't in there getting a grip for the curve or the changeup, they knew a fastball was coming. And when a fastball was coming, they smacked it. Springer doubled to, to, to deep left. You know, on the first pitch fastball, uh, a Bregman homered off of a fastball. And then Guriel hit a first pitch fastball that nearly went out of the park. All right. It went to the deepest part of the warning track. If it had been a little bit further to the left, it would have been another home run. So Strasburg ended up after that first inning where he was tipping pitches. And by the way, I would also add, because I went back and watched that first inning, tipping or no tipping, he was too dead center in the strike zone. He was missing. A yeah, he missed a little bit, yeah. too. Um, let's not discount that you know, in, in terms of his first inning uh, performance. After that, he went seven and a third, allowed three hits, no earned runs, and was brilliant. And got through a couple of really key portions. Yeah, I, d- when you say key portions... With everything that happens later, and we will get to everything that happens later, the most underrated moment, but arguably the Altuve. single, yes, the single most important moment was the bottom of the fifth inning. Runners on second and third, one out, with Altuve and Brantley do up. Altuve he gets strikeout swinging, and then he got Brantley to ground out. 
That was the game right there. No doubt about it. It was very similar and analogous to his sixth inning in game two. Now, the fifth inning, Reddick gets on with a single, which, by the way, is a shocker in this series. Plus, he was behind in the count. All right, so Reddick's on, and and then Springer did it again, a double off uh, a Strasburg. Reddick gets held up at third, and you got two runners on and nobody out, you know, in that spot. All right, and then comes the two key gets of the night. One out, excuse me. Two key gets of the night. It's Altuve and Brantley. Two of the most dangerous guys in their lineup. It is a chance for Houston to break the game open in the fifth inning. All right, you have uh, at that point it is a um, it's a three two game because in the previous top half of the inning that was when Eaton went deep and Soto went deep, and so you get Springer to double, you get Altuve uh, Altuve up, and he strikes out on three pitches. Huge, and by the way, the third pitch, the strikeout pitch, the swing and miss pitch, is a curveball that breaks so hard it ends up in the dirt. Now Tuve jumps out of his, you know, out of his out of his pants trying to swing at that thing. Then he gets Brantley to ground into the shift to end the inning. I totally agree with you. That fifth inning was the crucial portion of the game, and it was the last meaningful threat for Houston in the game, and it was snuffed out by the guy who's become the best big game pitcher in the sport. Okay, that's not an exaggeration. He's the first pitcher now to ever win five games with no losses in the postseason. First ever. He's got the second best ERA for any starting pitcher that's had at least five starts minimum in the history of the live ball era behind Sandy Koufax. We've mentioned that a few times. Meantime, you know, what was really fascinating about the Strasburg start last night was all of the bullpen activity. You know, Corbin, Hudson, and then Scherzer, which we will get to in a moment because I think I figured out why Scherzer was up. Um, but anyway, you know, Corbin's up, and I'm like, what What are you looking at? His pitch count is low. He's killing these these guys. They got no answer for him. You know, and even when they get a little bit of a threat, you know, um, Bregman beat out that throw by Rendon uh, in the sixth inning. Um, By the way, there was great defense behind Strasburg the entire night. Rendon was great. Turner was great. Cabrera was great. They all had great players all night long. But Bregman gets on the sixth, uh, gets on in the sixth, three straight outs. You know, two ground balls that were close to double plays, then a strikeout of Correa to end it. And meantime, you you got pitchers up. You know, Corbin Hudson and then Max Scherzer, which was the stunner of the night. Easy seventh for Strasburg. 11 pitches, one, two, three. Easy, breezy inning with Scherzer up in the bullpen. And I kept tweeting last night, Aaron, Davey, big boy's got it. You pitch him until his freaking arm falls off. He can go 125 if you need him tonight because his next pitching performance is going to be in the spring. Although maybe it could be tonight. I was going to say, yeah, who I wouldn't knows? rule that out. Who knows? But when Scherzer got up in the bullpen, I think there was a, I think everybody was completely shocked. What is Max Scherzer doing up in the bullpen? He's your starter tomorrow night, first of all. Secondly, why is anybody up in the bullpen? Anybody. So did you hear what Scherzer told Zuckerman and others after the game? I didn't hear what uh, Scherzer said. I heard so, what Davey said about Scherzer. Scherzer said there was a specific situation that he was he was going to be used for if they got to it. 
He would not elaborate. Um, I was having this conversation with Ray Knight and with Mark Zuckerman earlier, and I think I figured it out. I said it earlier in the show, and both of them agreed agreed with me. It was really simple. Um, It was in the seventh inning. Strasburg was going out there with, you know, potentially a 3-2 lead because you didn't know that when when Scherzer was up in the seventh, you know, end of the sixth, beginning of the seventh. You didn't know. He was up there, you know, while they were at bat in the seventh. They, they were thinking, you know, it could be a 3-2 lead, and it's the bottom of the order, and if somebody gets on in the bottom of the order, you know, whether it's Chirinos or Redick, then we may come with Scherzer to face the top of the order, that we don't want Springer, Altuve, um, and Brantley, and then potentially Bregman seeing Strasburg in the seventh in a 3-2 game with a runner or two on. And I think that's what it was. I would not have been in favor of that at all. Okay, so thank God they got two runs in the top of the seventh, and Strasburg had a no-stress, low-stress seventh inning. In fact, it was an 11-pitch seventh inning, followed by a five-pitch eighth inning. All right, a one, two, three, five-pitch eighth inning, uh, that was another... um, that was another example, I think, of in recent games, uh, a, a couple, Altuve in particular, uh, impatient, you know, uh, at the plate. You know, you would have thought they would have tried to get longer at bats. You know, Altuve three pitches, and then he grounded out. Uh, it was one pitch to Brantley, one pitch to Bregman, inning over. Then, you know, Strasburg comes out in the ninth. By the way, in my personal opinion, I don't think he gets yanked if it's 5-2. to two. I think the fact that they got two more runs in the top of the ninth on the uh, Rendon uh, two-run RBI double, I think that the 7-2 to two made it so that they just said, whether it was Davey managing from the clubhouse you know, through Chip Hale, whatever it was, at that point they decided, all right, you're going to face the right-hander in Gurriel, and then we're going to bring Doolittle in to get Alvarez. But I think if it had been 5-2, Aaron, I think Strasburg pitches a complete game, which would have only been his third complete game of his career. I think you're probably right there. Uh, you know, it's tough. To, I, honestly, I would have kept him out there anyways, no matter you know what the situation. I thought he should. Honestly, I thought he deserved it, if nothing else. And obviously, he was still looking good. You know, as it turned out, not a real issue unless something happens tonight and we come back uh, yeah. and say, "Oh no, Doolittle shouldn't have pitched the, to those two batters." But um, I, it was masterful. It was. You know, you heard it in the the post-game interview. I I think it was Rosenthal. He tried to somehow bring it back to the 2012 shutdown. And and it's something that people have been trying to do during this run and haven't quite been able to do it because really there there is no direct correlation there. It's it's hard to say. You know, you can make up whatever path you want to this moment. But it is funny, you know, looking at this performance. This is the performance going back to 2010. His first start. This yeah. is what we were expecting. Yeah, except a much deeper array of pitches. Yeah. You know, he's got four go-to yes. pitches, which is one of the reasons he is so great. Um, yeah, the whole bringing it back to the shutdown in 2012 before the postseason. Look, the transformation, the the evolution of this guy. You know, in terms of his mental toughness has been fascinating to watch. Now maybe the narrative on him all along was wrong, but we know, you know, that there were days where it was, you know, too cold or he hadn't gotten the proper rest. Um, everything needed to be perfect for this guy. But all this guy has done is in every elimination game for this franchise is he's gone out and pitched 
phenomenally phenomenally well. All right, you had game five in Wrigley two years ago. You had him out of the bullpen in a wild card game this year. You had him in game uh, uh, five against the Dodgers pitch great this year. Um, he has been awesome. 4-0 in elimination games, and now 5-0 in this postseason alone, the first pitcher to ever do it. I think when I said yesterday that I like the Nats, and it was simply for this reason. I just thought Strasburg would outpitch Verlander, and he did. And, and the game came down to a lot more than just that, which we're going to get to here in a moment. But it is interesting that Justin Verlander is now 0-6 in the World Series. And by the way, last night, five innings, three earned runs on five hits, walked three, but only struck out three. You know, some people I think were wondering why he got pulled. Well, he'd just given up the two home runs and the lead, you know, in the in the fifth to Eaton and Soto. But, you know, he had settled in from that first inning, but he only had three strikeouts, which was a tell. It's the fewest strikeouts he's had in a game all year long. And Hinch came uh Hinch came in uh in the sixth uh and, and brought and took Verlander out. And that was it for him and the opportunity for Justin Verlander to you know, add to his legacy. Look, he's a lock hall of famer. He's achieved almost everything you yeah. can achieve in the sport, you know. But Justin Verlander in this World Series, even though some of those five preceding losses weren't terrible starts, he's zero and six in the World Series. Mm-hmm. And last night he wasn't great, and the uh, the opponent, uh, the opposing pitcher, completely outpitched him. He uh, he definitely. It, it wasn't just that he wasn't. He was missing pitches. He was hanging pitches. He was not looking good early. He did settle down in you know the second third innings a little bit. But there were a lot of innings there where he was just missing and wasn't looking good. Going back to what you were kind of saying about Strasburg, one of the more fascinating things, not just who he's become as a pitcher, but also who he's become off the field, has been so fascinating this season. He was always one of those guys going into, really coming into this season who. Wasn't I wouldn't say standoffish with the media. He right. wasn't like, you know, Anthony Rendon. Shy. He, he was definitely, he didn't really relish the spotlight. He didn't love the Never fact that he had it. to do interviews after each start. He would give you very basic answers. He wouldn't delve into things. But this season, it, he's really started to own that. He started to accept it. You know, we saw him dancing in the dugout after that home run. There is a time, really before this year, there is no way he would have offered up about the, the tipping, tipping the, the pitches. pitches. It wouldn't have happened. No chance. He would have given Bly answers to that post game, But the fact that he felt comfortable enough to go out and just offer the fact that Menart came out and said that is incredible. And it's just one of those things where it's been an overall transformation for him from top to bottom. I love him. I I love Steven Strasburg. He's right now. I'm just trying to think of the teams in town and who my favorite player is. Tommy said to me the other day on the podcast, he's like, you really like Strasburg. And I'm like, yeah, I do. There, there's something about his, his way of doing it um, that I really enjoy. Like he has turned himself totally around in terms of the way people perceive him. But, but in terms of his pitching, you know, he's just gotten better. He's added more pitches. He is smarter. He isn't, he's not just this overpowering dude, even though he's a big dude at 6'4". You know, and he's got a presence on the mound. Um, but just this ice water in his veins. You know, Scherzer, you know, is a is is a great pitcher. He is a phenomenal, you know, he's a lock hall of fame pitcher in the future. Um, there is a calm and a cerebral approach and an ice water in his veins kind of competitiveness that isn't 
outward most of the time. We've seen it a couple of times. We saw it in the sixth inning of game two when he didn't get the call um, that could have gotten him uh, out of that inning, I think, against Correa. Um, I just love Steven Strasburg, and, and I'm, I'm serious about this. If you think about the all-time clutch postseason performers in D.C. sports history, he's at the top of the list with John Riggins. He is. I mean, the Caps had nothing but chokers for years. I know they won the Stanley Cup, and they had a lot of opportunities for big game performers. You know, and Ovechkin's you know playoff statistics were never as bad as sort of the perception of him not getting it done. But if you go back and you look at all the game sevens that they lost, he wasn't great in a lot of those game sevens. Didn't come through in a lot of those game sevens. Um, Rigo had the all-time postseason run. But we may be seeing number two, uh, if not a 1A. And that is what Strasburg's doing. And maybe what Anthony Rendon and Juan Soto are doing too. We'll get to them in a moment. <laughs> but Strasburg really, you know, um, the, the, the bullet slash wizards. Bobby Dandridge was a massive postseason clutch performer. Um, had one of the all-time clutch performances in a seventh and deciding game of the Eastern Conference Finals against San Antonio in 1979. So clutch that Dick Mata, who was the coach at the time, Aaron, they're in a seventh and deciding game against the Spurs, who were in the Eastern Conference back then. Um, They're the defending champions. The score's tied with 20 seconds to go in the game. They get in the huddle, and it's a famous story told by everybody that was in that huddle. Dick Mata says nothing for the first minute 50 of the timeout, and then with 10 seconds left to go before the horn's going to sound, and they're going to go back out there. They just said, uh, he just said to the, the entire uh, team, he said, just get it to Bobby and Bobby just go win it for us. That was the play. And Bobby Dandridge got to his spot, a little 12 footer baseline, buried it. They were on to the NBA Finals. He was a super clutch, ice water in his veins performer. Rigo, obviously, you know, Rigo, put it on me. I'm going to carry us to the Super Bowl. And he did. Strasburg's 5 0 in this postseason. He is 4-0 now in elimination games as a starting pitcher for the Washington Nationals. And last night in the World Series, down three games to two, he pitched a gem. And he outpitched Justin Verlander, and he's a big reason why the Nats are going to play for a world title tonight. There were other reasons, though. Uh, reason number two is Anthony Rendon. Three for four, a home run, five RBIs. Are you kidding me game six in the world series and he goes three for four with a home run and five rbis and the home run came after the trey turner controversy with you know all hell breaking loose around him and he basically said enough let me end this debate right here here's your verdict and he goes deep two run shot and it's five to two by the way pay him now it's a blank check at this point. Scott Boris has to be just thrilled about the results of this postseason. Rendon and Strasburg. And Strasburg. Just pay him because it will suck if he ends up somewhere else. As, by the way, potentially the defending champion next year. Here's his night, though, because it was a huge night, and it wasn't just about the home run. First inning, he goes into the gap, 
on the shift against the shift with an RBI single to get him up one to nothing in the top of the first. By the way, that was a seven pitch at bat. But here's what I thought was one of the real important at bats of the game. We talked about Strasburg's key get on Altuve and Brantley. How about the third inning 10 pitch at bat against Verlander where he fouled off five fastballs before finally drawing a walk? That got Verlander's pitch count up and ultimately really was part and parcel to Verlander getting pulled after the fifth with 93 pitches. That was an incredible at-bat. The fifth inning, which was his only out in the entire game, he just missed the Verlander slider and flew out to right. Then in the seventh, after all the controversy, the Trey Turner play, which we will get to, Davey's been tossed. By the way, nobody really knows what the hell just happened because in part, and I'm going to get to this, I think Fox did a terrible job in the in the seventh inning during that controversy. But Rendon takes Harris's second pitch deep. It didn't totally erase what had just happened because if Turner were on base, it would have been a three-run shot and the lead would have been 6-2, to two, not 5-2. to two. But what a shot, what a clutch night for Rendon. By the way, on defense, too, he was outstanding all night long. And his three hits in last night's game, and this is why he's so valuable. Three different pitchers. Cutter, curve, fastball. And his walk against Verlander in the third was epic. He's so good, he's going to cash in so big, please let it be here. Rendon is sort of the second big takeaway from the game last night. You got anything to add to Rendon? I mean, Rendon was, you know, exactly who he's been. Being able to just force that ball, you know, going back to the first inning, just kind of push that ball through the shift there. That's exactly what, again, going back to when he was drafted, I did that for Strasburg. That's exactly what they said, a guy, precision hitter, who can put the ball exactly where he wants it. This was really, you know, the overwhelming. If you're showing a highlight video of who is Anthony Rendon, you're showing, as a hitter, you're showing them this game. And it was, you know, as you said, he could be going somewhere else with the World Series MVP, and it's it's been incredible to watch. He is, and he and he does it with such cool and calm, and a heartbeat and a pulse rate that is, you know, less than forty five. I was going to say, like. what 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 pulse, what heart <clears throat> yeah. rate? He, he's just he's a robot out there. Um, the third takeaway from last night is Juan Soto. Um, the home run that gave the Nats the lead in the fifth was uh, what we've seen throughout the postseason, a pressure situation. It's a 2-2 two to two game. It's the fifth inning, game six, have to have it. He's facing Justin Verlander, and he didn't just deliver. He hit a 3-1 blast <laughs> off of Verlander that is still in flight. He becomes the youngest player in World Series history to have three home runs in the World Series. And by the way, prior to that 3-1 fastball, the one that the pitch that made it 3-1 and one, that Verlander was upset about, that looked like it may have caught the top part of the strike zone. It was close. Soto goes, nope, that's a ball. Basically looked right at, you know, uh, at, at Chirinos and back at Verlander. No, that's a ball. And I know you could sense that Ver, Ver, Verlander's like, you don't tell me what that is, young buck. He, he gave that huge shuffle in the box yeah. and almost get, flashed him a smile yeah. there. And then, oh, yeah. and then he hit that bomb. And then, by the way, he carried his bat down to first like Bregman did with his bottom of the first home run, which was Bush League. 
but whatever. I don't really no. have much of Not an issue with it. Not a bush league. Um, well, it is no. for old school baseball. Yeah, people. whatever. It, yeah. It's 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 not bush league, especially when you're you you you'd rather. I think that even the old the old school people would rather see that than see uh, Bregman get you know hit in the ear hole, which is what the other response would have been there. You know, you were talking about how Strasburg's far and away, you know your favorite guy and maybe your favorite guy in DC sports right now. I think it's Juan Soto, and I think Juan Soto is going to be the new face of DC sports for the next God knows how long. Every you know young fan is going to love Juan Soto, and he is. I, I heard a comparison yesterday that I think is dead on. He's the new Alex Ovechkin. Like he's a guy you got as a very young age. You're going to see develop, and a guy who brought a different type of energy to the team than we had seen before, and who's also who just happens to be. Quite possibly the best player on the team as well. Well, and clearly, yes, he's got that superstar look yeah. to him right now. Um, just so you know, you know who was not happy about Bregman was Strasburg. Not happy. At oh all. yeah, he called it tired, um, and Davey wasn't uh, happy about it. AJ Hinch was not happy about it uh, either, um, and said that he was going to talk to Bregman afterwards. But I loved Soto's answer as to why he did it. Soto said, and "I'm paraphrasing." I saw Bregman do it, and it was just kind of cool, so I thought I would do it too. Um, Takeaway number four, Adam Eaton. Okay, that is a huge home run. You don't know what you're going to get at that point. Remember, this is a team that scored three runs in three games over the weekend at home, and it's two to one. You're not sure what you're going to get from them, and Eaton homers in the fifth to tie the game. That was massive. But just how about Adam Eaton in this World Series? He's now seven of 21 with four RBIs and two home runs in the game last night. He was one for two with that home run and RBI. He walked and he got hit by a pitch in the game. Uh, Adam Eaton has been sensational in this World Series. Um, Lastly, you know, is the Turner play. And we can spend as much time as you'd like on it. I, I spent probably too much time on it this morning. Here's the bottom line, okay? And this is what was frustrating to me in the moment. There, there were a couple of things, but the bottom line is it is a judgment call. The judgment by the home umpire was that there was runner interference by Trey Turner. And there's no doubt that when you watch the play, Turner spends 95% of his sprint to first base well left of the line. Now, any right-hander, and I played baseball, okay, so I actually played through JV uh, baseball in high school. If you're a right-hander and you hit a shot to the left part of the infield, it takes you into the field of play. So you got to work your way back. Left-handers, no problem. You can start in foul territory and stay there on your sprint. Um, Ray Knight said to me this morning, he said, look, here's the bottom line. It's a terrible rule because the only reason that the rule is in place is for a catcher who has to run out to catch a dribbler that goes left or right, he has to have a clear throwing lane to the first baseman. Any other player, third base, shortstop, second base, is going to have the clear lane to throw to the pitcher, which the third baseman had, and he made a bad throw, which is why there ended up being contact with the glove and Gurriel lost the glove, which, by the way, is what really, I think, got Holbrook's attention, is that the glove came flying off. But the bottom line is it's a judgment call, and it's not reviewable, and it's also not a call that you can protest a game over. 
and all of the shenanigans that happened after the play were completely um, confusing in the moment for probably 90% of the audience. First of all, let me start with this. When you are a big-time analyst on a big game, John Smoltz, you got to make a call on that. you got to tell us, is it the right call or the wrong call? They never did. All right, Buck and Smoltz, they're explaining it. They never mentioned that it wasn't a reviewable play in that top in the in when it happened in the seventh inning, which is a big miss. A big miss. Because when you see the umpires over there on the headset, you think this play is under review. And that's essentially the way they described it. Well, guess what? A judgment call is not a reviewable play. They didn't tell us that until the bottom of the seventh. That's a big miss in the moment. But back to the former, if you're John Smoltz, and I actually like Smoltz. I think he's pretty good. I think you learn a lot. You, When you're in a spot like that and you've got a controversial play, you got to tell us, did they get it right or get it wrong? And there was so much waffling in that seventh inning. And they appeared to be confused, which they were. And then, by the way, when we come back from the commercial, they buried the lead. Davey had been thrown out yeah. during the commercial. We didn't get that for a minute and a half or two minutes. And what we got initially was, hey, by the way, this is not a reviewable call. We should have gotten that in the moment. And when they came back and said he's out, we thought it had been replayed. So the bottom line was that there was, according to Joe Torrey afterwards, um, there was an understanding before this World Series started that the managers could ask in a judgment call situation for them to look at it on replay to make sure that they interpreted the rule correctly. Not the call, but the rule, which is what Davey asked for, he got. They came back and they signaled he's out, okay? Which made you believe in the moment they had reviewed it, all right, and that the call on the field was upheld, but really what they were doing was they were interpreting the rule because Davey asked him to interpret the rule. It was a judgment call. Davey knew it. And Davey then lost his mind again, obviously, and got thrown out. And I'll get to that in, in a moment. But ultimately, you know, it's a judgment call, not protestable, not reviewable. It's a bad rule. There, And by the way, Aaron, here's the other thing about that rule. Why does Gomes have to go back to first? That, that, yeah, that's the other completely well, He should be on second base. Yes, 100%. He should go back from third to second, you know, on, on, the, uh, on the bad throw yes. that allowed him to advance yes. a base. But they yes. didn't throw the ball to second to right. try to get him. No, it, it, it's a, it was a terrible. But, and, and yes, by the extreme letter of the law, they have the right to call that. However, that's a play... In my lifetime, I've seen a thousand times, maybe more, and I don't think I've ever seen that call made. It's a call they can make, but you don't do it. It's like the neighborhood play at second base. Yes, sometimes you don't technically touch second, but you just give it to him anyways. Right. You don't make that call. You don't make that call there. You you can say all you want about by the letter of the law, and when I say you, I don't mean you. I just mean the general population that that it was correct but it was not the correct call it was not a call that umpires ever ever make yeah no i'm not saying they got it right i'm just saying that it's a judgment call which couldn't be reviewed and couldn't uh couldn't protest a game over by the way the the other thing real real quick about smoltz um i agree with you smoltz dropped the ball actually the people who i thought did a really 
good job. If anyone did a good job, I thought Verducci, uh, Verducci and Rosenthal, Verducci and Rosenthal killed it, yes. but not in not right away. Not they didn't set it down to him right, right away, but they were the ones who eventually I were the ones who, who cleared it up. And you know, we kind of I know a lot of people say, "What's the point of dugout reporters? What's the point of sideline reporters and stuff?" We saw what they can do in this case. Yeah, in that particular case, that's true. And, you know, in football, it's always, you know, trying to get the injury information or get an explanation on a controversial call. But I just – I thought that, you know, if you're calling a game and you're the key analyst and there's a controversial call, you got to weigh in at some point. you got to look at it four ways to Sunday, and then you got to say, you know what, they got it wrong or they got it right, which isn't what happened. But I agree with you, Verducci, when they came back, and Rosenthal were outstanding. Verducci in particular was very good because he had the whole thing uh, figured out at that point. And look, I understand that it was a complicated situation and that everybody needed time. If I had been calling the game, I am not a, you know, a deep into the rule book guy, you know, um, now with, with baseball, I, I wouldn't have had really much of a clue or much of an instinct football and basketball much more. Um, but still, you know, Smoltz, you got to give us something there. You got to give us something. Um, so Davey gets tossed, uh, which was the other aspect of this. And, you know, if you take it chronologically, he gets very upset by the call at first, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the whole sequence. He gets very upset. And then he gets them to go review the interpretation of the rule. Not the call itself, but this was, again, Tory said managers were told that in the case of judgment calls, they can ask umpires to check on their interpretation of the rules, which is what Davey asked for and got. So then after, you know, a near five-minute delay, which, by the way, there were, apparently were some communication issues. And, by the way, during that delay, did you see Trey Turner in the dugout? Oh, my God. You know, screaming, there's Tory. Yeah. Like, go, go ask him. He's right there. Um, so, anyway, uh, they come back and they – they 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 give you the you know he's out as if they've just upheld the mm-hmm. calling on the on the field th- via review which is what I'm thinking and I think most of you were thinking Davy knew that it wasn't that but then Davy went off again and I I'm wondering what additional thing happened to set him off for the second time Chip Hale's out there trying to hold him back Davy lost his mind and by the way I loved it. Because to me, and I felt it in the moment, I felt that this was not just about that call, but it was about the series. That the frustration of Robles being punched out in Game 5 on a clear ball that was outside and high. And he should have been on first base. To the you know the Correa pitch before his two-run homer when Joe Ross had him struck out. All right, I think it just built up over five games. And he lost it. And personally, I'm sitting there, and I was on Twitter last night. I don't get the reaction of, you can't get thrown out in that spot. You know, I understand you're upset, but uh, you you got you to gotta keep your cool there. It, it's the World Series. It's, it's not right that Dave Martinez got that upset and got tossed out. To me, that is the reaction more often than not of non-competitive people. All right? If you are living this series... You know, pitch by pitch, you knew exactly what Dave Martinez was going through in that spot. He was, he had had it. He had had it with the bad calls through the first five games, and he wasn't going to let his team get screwed in game six. And by the way, I think he should have done that in the Robles at bat on, on Sunday night and mentioned that yesterday. So 
I loved it. He got tossed. By the way, almost everybody will tell you that he's managing that game from inside the bowels of that clubhouse. 100%. Okay? He's, he's making the calls. They got TVs down there. They got cable. Um, but anyway, I had no problem with it at all. I just was worried for him. I was worried about his ticker. You know, I wanted to make sure that he was healthy. I was but, worried for Chip Hale there for a second. I know. Chip Hale, I love, uh, I think it was Sean Doolittle, he was just saying, man, we, we, we got to get Chip Hale in the weight room. Davey was tossing him around like he was a D-end trying he, he, to get to was. the quarterback. I mean, I you haven't seen that from Dave Martinez. But um, anyway, it was an incredible game. There were other uh, portions of it. You know, the, to me, um, Robles in particular is struggling a lot. I thought we might get Matt Adams to, to pinch hit for him in the ninth um, when it was still 5-2 to two and you could have used more runs. They ended up getting more runs. Uh, he went down. He flew out to left in his last at bat. I think he struck out three more times last night. I think he's got five strikeouts now in the last two games. Um, but, you know, w- once the lead got to, you know, Five to two. I think they were just thinking about his defense uh, in particular. Um, uh, what else did I have? Uh, just looking uh, through my notes. The defense behind Strauss was great. Um, I think that's it. I think that's basically it on the game. Um, now we get to tonight. We get to tonight, and we get you know obviously Max Scherzer with the quarter zone shot. Now, I've had those shots before. I'm not a professional athlete. I understand that. Um, but I've had those shots when I was much younger um, in both my uh, – to clear up uh, sciatica, to clear up uh, disc herniation pain, um, nerve pain. Uh, and also I've had that in my hand and in my elbow before. I've had multiple cortisone shots over the years. And they can work really well or they don't work at all. But this one apparently worked really well. And so more likely than not, I would guess we're going to see Max Scherzer healthy tonight. You know, that cortisone effect can can be days, weeks, even months in terms of how good you feel after you get that cortisone shot. By the way, you're limited to like one a year, I think, or maybe it's one every six months. I, I don't think it's wait because remember, I think it was... 2012, we kept hearing about Ryan Zimmerman getting those cortisone shots. Like, that was a big thing through the season. He started off really slowly. I think he started injured in that season. I, th- I think you you are limited to how many of those you can get during the course of a year. I, I think it's limited, but I don't know if it's six. I feel like we were hearing about him getting one maybe once a month or six weeks or so. I don't know exactly. I, let me put it this way. If you're a normal, you know, weekend warrior, right. uh, wannabe athlete, you probably only should get one of those a year. Yeah, here we go. I, I just yeah. I just Googled Ryan Zimmerman cortisone shot, and he had a third one in June. So This, I, this, this year? No, no, 20, in, oh, in back 2012? in 2012. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, if if a doctor out there wants to weigh in, uh, have at it. Uh, you know, if, if uh, Mike, uh, Mike, if you want to uh, tweet me, um, please do it. Uh, Mike Goldsmith is one of the uh, better surgeons, one of the better um, orthopedic guys in town, uh, and he's done my lower back operation twice. And I would recommend him highly. If you've got you know disc herniation and you need a discectomy, he's the best. Um, anyway, uh, we are on to what happened with the Redskins right after we make a prediction on this game, right after I tell you about stamps.com. All right, stamps.com is the perfect service for small businesses. You know, if you are making multiple trips or you've got people making multiple trips to the post office every day and it's costing you, uh, by the way, time and money, 
usestamps.com. I always wonder who in the world still goes to a post office and why. Stamps.com brings the post office right to you. There's no need to interrupt your workday, to fight traffic, to get to the post office, especially now as we approach the holiday time of the year when the post office is extra busy with people sending you know gifts and cards, etc. That's why you need Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do at Stamps.com. Uh, it brings all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com handles it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24 hours a day, seven days a week for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it off in a mailbox. It's that simple. Now, with Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off of priority mail. So it not only saves you money, uh, saves you time, but it saves you money as well. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com, including the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. And when you do so, use my promo code, Kevin DC, and you're going to get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment or contract required. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in my promo code, Kevin DC. That's stamps.com, Kevin DC. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. All right, let's get to the Redskins news of yesterday because there was a lot of it. It was really one of those days, Aaron, you know, in sports in this city. We don't get a lot of them. The truth of the matter is, we really don't get too many of them. Um, but yesterday, with the trade deadline and with all of the Redskins news, we had essentially, you know, an afternoon full of Redskins news and reports, you know, and reactions. And by the way, social media going nuts in Redskin Nation. And then quiets down just in time for Game Six, and then it starts up all, uh, you know, uh, uh, it starts up uh, all together again. So I want to start with something that is not trade deadline or Trent Williams reporting back um, related. And it was the report from Les Carpenter yesterday of The Post about Dwayne Haskins. Not sure how many of you caught this or not, but it was a very interesting uh, report from Les Carpenter. The quote of his story on Dwayne Haskins uh, in The Post, which is titled, Dwayne Haskins could start on Sunday, but questions remain about how ready he is. Um, It's really about how ready he is, is what the story is. And by the way, could he start on Sunday? Yes, if Case Keenum remains in concussion protocol and can't play. There's a possibility that Dwayne Haskins could start his first game on Sunday. Here's the money quote from the story. Quote, multiple people with knowledge of Haskins' development said Haskins is struggling to learn the team's plays and they express surprise that he doesn't know them yet. So there you go. You know, this has been implied, this has been discussed, this has been debated. Um, We have known for a while that Dwayne Haskins was struggling 
to learn the plays, to call the plays, to get comfortable in the team's offense, Jay Gruden's offense, Bill Callahan's version of the offense. We've known this for a while, which is why, essentially, he's pretty much the only rookie quarterback um, that hasn't played football this year or hasn't started a game. It seems like pretty much anybody that's had an opportunity is, and by the way, another one's going to start this weekend. Did you see Ryan Finley is going to start mm-hmm. for the Bengals this weekend, but we've seen rookie quarterbacks all over the, uh, all over the league this year, starting including guys like sixth rounders, like Gardner Minshew in Jacksonville. Um, we've known that there's been a bit of an issue. Some of you, by the way, you know, sent this to me and said, well, you were right about Haskins. I, I, I'm not right about Haskins yet. We haven't seen him play. We haven't seen him coached well. Okay, I was not a fan of Haskins coming out in the draft. To me, he was not a first-round guy. You know, that was a contrarian view, but to me, I watched every single Ohio State game, had no idea whether or not the Redskins would have a chance to draft him, and I just said there are other guys I like more. To me, Kyler Murray was incredibly intriguing. All right. To me, Daniel Jones looked more ready, but I wasn't sure about him. I did like Ryan Finley in particular and Drew Locke. Those were the guys I liked. By the way, the Redskins football people, I know of at least one person that really liked Drew Locke. And I know of at least one person in their organization that really thought Ryan Finley had a chance to be a good quarterback as well, coming out of that system, which is more a pro-style system at NC State. But anyway, here's the, the bottom line with this. He may have been the wrong pick. It's no doubt now, right, that he was overdrafted. I think that that ship has sailed in terms of that debate. He was overdrafted. Okay, he, when you have a shitty team at 1-7 and seven, and Case Keenum is the guy playing in front of you and you can't get on the field in your rookie season and you're hearing things that he's a long-term project, he's got a long way to go, you were overdrafted, period. And we know that, you know, according to various reports, that there were several teams that didn't have any better than a third-round grade on him. And a lot of teams probably felt he was more late first or second, which is what I think, by the way, the Redskins football people thought. They thought, you know, he's a good talent. He's got some big-time upside, but he's a long-term project. You know, and we need people that we can draft that can help us now because, oh, by the way, we're close. You know, we're close. Um, But here's the thing with this story and with all of the conversation about Dwayne Haskins. This is a coaching issue, too, because you've got to create a situation for Haskins where he can get on the field, and you can do that. As a head coach, as an organization, if you make it a priority, which they should be at 1-7, and and having drafted him at number 15, and with Case Keenum and Colt McCoy ahead of him, all right, two paths to nowhere, to a future of nowhere. You have to figure out a way to get him on the field and coach him up and get him comfortable. Again, I've, I've used this example a million times, and I know it's not apples to apples with what the Redskins are, uh, with what I would ask the Redskins to do. But he, he looked at a couple of pictures, clapped three times, and threw 50 touchdowns at Ohio State. He had exceptional skill position talent. I understand that. I understand he threw a lot of passes sideways and backwards, but that's Urban Meyer coaching, knowing what kind of offense will work that he's comfortable with. He got him comfortable. He's got an arm. He's got feel for the in the pocket. He's got size. You know, I tweeted out yesterday, Aaron, 
Number 17, go deep. Everybody else do your best to get open. On two, break. Obviously, that's an oversimplification. Some of you were uh, thinking that, that that's really what I thought they should do. The point is, they've got to simplify it. they got to coach. they got to create a situation where it isn't so complex. Because you know who else had problems with this offense last year? Alex Smith. And he's been in the league forever. He wasn't comfortable with it. Get him comfortable and get him on the field. This is as much a coaching issue as it is a player issue. All right. Is it possible that they totally blew it with this draft choice? Absolutely, it is. In my view, it's more likely than not that they did blow it with this draft choice. But you're not going to know it until you coach to his level, until you give him a chance to get on the field comfortable. Because right now, he can't even call the play. And we know from Jay Gruden's offense, a lot of people will say, it's way too long in verbiage. It's way too complicated. Simplify it. Not that hard. All right, This is not rocket science. I understand it's more complex and more complicated than most of us know. Cooley had the best idea. You tell him not to worry about reading defenses, not worry about calling out mics or shifting or changing protections. You put him in the shotgun, and it's throwing hot on every play that you're going to throw the ball on. What does that mean? That means that it's a one-read deal. You know where the pressure's coming from, and you throw it to the hot receiver. And that's all you have to do. And on the other possession, on the other plays, from the shotgun, you hand the ball to number 26. I don't get this at all. And by the way, the, these reports coming out, typical Redskins, right? You know, quotes, anonymous, multiple people with knowledge of Haskins' development said Haskins is struggling to learn the team's plays, and they express surprise that he doesn't know them yet. You know, this is the stuff that is bad for him. I have heard he's a good kid, all right? Maybe he just needs to learn how to learn. A lot of people need to learn differently. A lot of people need to be taught how to be a professional. You know, that takes leadership. It takes mentors in the organization. And this is the concern I have. They don't have them. He would have been much better off going to another team with smarter people that could have really given him a chance. Anyway, uh, that's enough about him. How about the rest of the stuff that happened yesterday? First of all, let's start with this. They didn't make any trades. They didn't trade Trent Williams. They didn't trade Josh Norman. They didn't trade Ryan Kerrigan. They didn't trade Adrian Peterson. They didn't trade anybody that's going to be a free agent next year that they don't have signed. They didn't trade anybody. Okay, and I told you yesterday that my gut feel was that nothing was going to happen. And again, it goes back to my sense that they believe they're on the verge of proving everybody wrong here in the second half of the season. They really do. They think in many ways they've already proved us wrong with their performances against Minnesota and San Francisco. I mean, laugh as hard as you want right now, but that's what they think. They're really, really upset they didn't get the result, that they didn't get the win in both of those games. They felt like they earned it. They felt like they were really close. Now, I learned something about the Trent Williams trade um, situation here over the last 48 hours. First of all, um, I learned that the market for Trent Williams became just Cleveland. 
And that was problematic because for the Redskins, it meant less leverage in trying to trade Trent Williams. There were more teams interested earlier in the season and even before the season than there were over the last week. The time to pounce on something was when Houston hadn't solved their problem with the Laramie Tunsil trade, when New England, you know, had Isaiah Wynn who, you know, was injured and was struggling and they were looking for a left tackle. Denver, uh, this guy Garrett Bowles is a disaster when they still potentially thought they were going to have a season. Cleveland, before they lost to New England to fall to two and five, you know, the, the bottom line is they were in better position to make a really good deal for their team when more than one team was interested. And here over the last couple of weeks, it's just been Cleveland. There was also something else about this, and this one came from J.P. Finley. Finley, um, J.P. uh, tweeted out yesterday, the quote, the one quote that stands out talking with league sources on possible Trent Williams move, the Redskins wouldn't take calls on a trade for months and now nobody wants to bail them out, close quote. That, when I read that yesterday, that rung so true to me because I do believe that this smugness, this arrogance that Bruce Allen and the organization carries themselves with is off-putting to everybody in the league. And so when you combine, as I've said before, arrogance, smugness with simple, small-mindedness, you're just not going to make or put yourself into a position to make good deals. You know, uh, when when you, the, the people are calling and you're essentially saying, don't call me, we're not trading Trent Williams. You know, it's not happening. And then you get to the point where you realize, oh shit, uh, we could really use something back for Trent Williams. He really doesn't ever want to play for us. Well, you know, you've limited your marketplace, first of all, and then... You've blown them off so many times, and now all of a sudden they don't want to bail you out. Okay? Makes sense to me. Now, did they totally miss out on a Trent Williams blockbuster deal opportunity? You know, that maybe it'll happen, you know, when this season is over? Yeah, there's always that chance. Um, Again, going back to, you know, when he missed training camp um, or when he missed the, the, the mini camp and. I mean, I was calling for him to be traded last January, but I said, you know, this may work out in the team's favor. If they are uh, open to trading him, teams get desperate right before the season starts or early in the season or even sometimes right before the trade deadline. Um, It's not what Bruce thinks, obviously, but remember this. He's going to be a year older next year, uh, and potentially he'll only have one year left on his contract. That's not as attractive as two. Um, There's more on that. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But is he still talented? Yes. He'll be 32. Yes. Um, More likely than not, there will be a market for Trent Williams between, you know, January and, you know, next April before the draft. I just don't think it's as big of a market as there was between, say, August and early October um, of this year. But I don't think Bruce and Dan actually even care. You know, they wanted to bleed Trent. They wanted to make him tap out and crawl back. Um, They wanted to stick it to him, and I think they're going to stick it to him some more, too, and I'm going to have that news here in a moment. This is what they get off on, all right? Feeling like they were wronged by somebody and then getting revenge. It doesn't help them win games, but it makes them feel better. Now, I'm going to say this, as I've said many times. I do 
absolutely understand why they are pissed off. And I think it's totally justifiable why they are so angry and why they did not want to let him get away with getting traded and moving on to another place and getting a new deal. You know, they may have total justification for the way they feel. And by the way, Trent Williams, you had two years left on your deal. You left your team high and dry. And you left your team high and dry for something that we don't know is true. We haven't heard directly from you. We've heard from your surrogates. And if it's not true, that's a real low road to travel, to talk about and disparage their medical and training staffs. And by the way, this is a team that stuck by you when you kept getting suspended for weed. So I do understand the team's position on this. But as I've said to you many times in the past, it's Tommy's favorite line. How much is the juice worth the squeezing? You know, is this helping you win games? And it hasn't helped them win games. It makes them feel better, just like lowballing Kirk Cousins and implying that he was a greedy fool felt good to them. You know, leaking information on what a drunk Scott McLuhan was made them feel justified for firing him. And that's been sort of this Trent Williams situation. You know, this is the way they operate. This is Bruce to a T. All right, this is, you know, again, him feeling like he's been wronged, which he may have been. The organization may have been wronged by Trent Williams. Trent Williams really may have been the total bad guy in this situation. I am not discounting that as a possibility. All I'm saying is that at some point, you got to think about winning games. And this was not a precedent-setting set, uh, situation. There were opportunities to deal him for some really good compensation. And to bleed him and make him crawl back to feel better about your position on this doesn't help you win games. Now, there's more to this, all right? A lot more to this because... I believe that Trent Williams and his agent really messed up big time. Now, why did he come back yesterday? He came back yesterday because if he came back after yesterday, he would have had to have been reinstated by the team to be on the 53-man roster or the injured reserve or the pup list. But Pro Football Talk put out a story for you, actually put this story out. And I did a little research and talked to a few people, and I want everybody to know what I learned about this situation. So he put out this story yesterday about the Trent Williams thing. And he said, you know, Trent Williams, you know, reported back in essentially because he wants to make sure that his contract, you know, um, basically gets credited for an accrued season. And and he needed to be back by week 10 for that to happen. But in this particular case, because he hadn't reported yet, the team needed to reinstatement. He needed to be back, you know, before uh, week uh, nine in this particular spot, which is why he showed up yesterday. But there was, there was a, a, a wrinkle to this story. Joey Galloway in 1999, um, there was a grievance filed uh, by um, in, in a Joey Galloway versus the Seahawks situation in 1999. Joey Galloway ultimately was a holdout and under contract um, to the Seahawks in 1999. And the Seahawks argued that if he missed one regular season game, his contract should what they call toll for a full year. All right, that's the term that we heard a lot yesterday, essentially meaning that it gets, you know, 
brought over to the next year. That he doesn't that the games that he missed during the holdout, he's not getting credit for that season. That if he had two years left on his deal, now he's still got two years left on his deal because he held out. So Joey Galloway held out for eight games in 1999, and the Seahawks filed a grievance saying, "Hey, he was under contract. If he misses one game, that contract should toll for another year, for a full year." Well, Galloway ultimately won that grievance. However, that became sort of the baseline in some ways for uh, the for future rulings. Uh, Florio wrote, the ruling has since been interpreted as giving players under contract the ability to be on the roster for only eight regular season games to avoid a tolling of the contract. If a player is on the roster for fewer than eight regular season games, the team would have a potentially stronger argument for the tolling. And he writes, Williams rejoins Washington with eight games left in the regular season. If Washington takes advantage of the ability to use a roster exemption for Williams, he'll end up with fewer than eight games on the active roster. The Redskins can use this roster exemption for up to three weeks. All right. If they do that, then Trent Williams isn't on the roster for eight weeks. There's more to this, though. And this is where Trent Williams and his agent may have screwed up. Per the CBA, bear with me on this too. And if you're not following me, I'm going to try to sum it up here. All right. Per the CBA, a player needs six regular season games either on the 53-man roster or one of the reserve lists, all right, the injured reserve list or the pup list, to get credit for a season. Six games, which would tell you that Trent Williams needed to be in by what? Week 10, so that he would have the final six games on the 53-man roster. Now, he came in, all right, after week eight, all right, prior to week nine. So there are eight games left on the schedule. So he should be good for six games on one of these lists to get credit for the season. But then we go back to the exempt list opportunity that Florio wrote about. And this is what I have heard, that the Redskins are going to use this exempt list to put him on there for three games, which means that he will not have enough games on the 53-man roster. Okay, so what do we have left? We have nine left, uh, eight left. So if he's on the list for three games, that leaves five that he could be on the 53-man roster or one of the reserve lists, which means his contract would not accrue. It would not toll, all right? Or it would toll, excuse me. It would toll to the next year. And that means the Redskins would have two years left on the Trent deal. Now, it would get argued. There would be a grievance filed more likely than not. But I've been told that the Redskins feel very strongly that Trent Williams really needed to avoid this opportunity for himself to be in last week. Because if he had been in last week with nine games left and they used the three-game exemption, he would still get, per the CBA, the six games. But since he came in a week later, if they use the three-week exemption, he'll only get credit potentially for five games. And that means the Redskins would be in position to win any sort of argument with Trent Williams, and Trent Williams would still have two years left on his deal, which, by the way, the Redskins should try to get. They absolutely should go after this because he is more tradable and they've got more leverage if he's got two years left on his deal 
than one. You know, did, I, I, I did do you actually... Under, did you understand that? Yes, I, I did understand okay. that for the most part. I, there's something I do... I'm a little curious about as far as the two versus one. Yes, logic says that, obviously, if he has two years, he's more valuable than one. But most likely, if you trade him, he's going to ask for a new contract I anyways, agree with that. Correct? Totally agree with that. In fact, that, that's a really good point and a really good you know add-on is that ultimately Trent Williams is going to say, I want a new deal regardless. So a team that makes the deal knows that they're going to sign him to a contract extension, which means it really doesn't matter what he's got left on his deal. However, you know... Just on the surface, two years is more yes, marketable than absolutely. one. Absolutely, is that all you had? Because yeah. that's a really good uh, point. Because yes. I do think that a team that trades for him ultimately is going to understand they're going to have to give him a new deal. And by the way, at thirty-two, it's going to be harder for him to get this new deal, yes. which makes it harder on the Redskins. Which is why ultimately they should have done this much earlier. Yes, one hundred percent. I just, you know, as I know, you know, we've been th- throwing this around and online has been throwing it around. It's the one thing that's kind of stuck out to me that people are like, oh well, you know, that this is going to make a huge difference when. For that specific reason, right. I don't think it makes as big a difference. No, I as think being are, 32 are is a bigger yes, reason. That is a big reason. Um, and by the way, you know, just the history of players who hold out for a long period of time, and when they do come back, they're more injury prone and they're not always the same player. Yes. Um, but I, I, here's the thing, you know, I want to make sure I'm really clear on this because I hate the way the Redskins do business. I think they handled yesterday in an absolute irresponsible way with respect to the trade deadline. Um, I think they are detached from reality. There's a delusional aspect to their management team that is just unbelievable um, for to think that grown adults uh, in that business could be that far removed from what their reality is. There's a lack of self-awareness in that organization that is mind-boggling. With that said, specific to this Trent Williams thing, if there really isn't an issue with their medical and training staff, shame on him, Okay. He had two years left on the deal. He put out there through, you know, people he knew that this wasn't about money, that this was about, you know, a lack of trust in the organization and, and the medical team. And by the way, if Trent Williams can't stand Bruce Allen and Dan Snyder, Bruce Allen in particular, who, I mean, who can blame him? I think we all would understand that sentiment, but too bad. You had two years left on a contract that was front-loaded, and you knew on the back end it was going to be one of those contracts that would look less appealing on the back end, but that's because they paid you so much on the front end. So if the team does go after this, and they put him on this exempt list, you know, and they cost him three weeks, and they cost him his ability for the contract to toll, um, for the contract to accrue, so be it. I'm all for the team doing that. You know, that to me would be good business. Now, the better business move would have been to trade him already. All right. When you had an opportunity potentially with Houston or Cleveland earlier or even New England to actually get a really good package back. By the way, I did read yesterday in multiple spots that they were asking for picks and Denzel Ward from Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those of you not following Cleveland, Denzel Ward is a stud corner. All right, he is a big-time stud corner. And I'm glad that they knew that Denzel Ward was a stud corner and asked about him because I'm not even sure they know who's good and who isn't <laughs> around the league anymore. But so even, even if they're if they're that uh, fantasy team who tries to make the lowball offers, at least they know who to low, try to lowball. Exactly. Um, one last thing on the Trent Williams thing. Uh, Tom Pelissero sort of spelled out everything uh, with Trent Williams. 
I mean, he's due $5.8 million in base salary for the rest of this year, plus like $15,000, you know, for each game he's active. He's not going to be active for any games. I doubt it. And then he's got one year left at $12.5 million. But ultimately, Trent Williams has cost himself close to $3 million this year by holding out. Um, That is, uh, for him, ultimately... Probably not the decision that paid off in a big way for him. He didn't get traded. He didn't get a new deal. He may end up going into next year with still two years left on his contract and still with the same team. He's dealing with a group of people that would love to see him pay dearly uh, for his lack of loyalty, for his lack of being a good teammate and doing the right thing and living up to a contract, however you want to say it. Um, It did not work out well for Trent Williams, uh, this holdout. And it didn't work out well for the team either. I think both of those things are true. Now, if they end up getting a blockbuster deal prior to next year's draft, you know, if it comes super late and it comes in January, or it would have to come in March. You can't make a trade until March. So in March, if they end up getting a first and a third or a really good player in a second, a young player like Denzel Ward, which was never going to be a part of any deal. There's no way you trade Denzel Ward and picks for Trent Williams. If they had done that, I would have I would have been on this podcast today leading with how smart Bruce Allen was. Um, it could still work out for the Redskins, but to date, it has not worked out for the Redskins, and it didn't work out for Trent Williams either. Um, all right, quick word about mybookie.com. AG. If you're looking for a place to bet the game tonight, by the way, the Houston Astros are minus 140 favorites, which by the way, seems about right, Aaron, I think, you know, like Granky was a favorite on the road in game three. They were down two nothing. I think Houston's just getting credit for being at home and being a really good offensive team, even though the home team hasn't won, but them being so capable of having an explosive night. And by the way, some mystery as to what Scherzer really is tonight has them favored again in this series um, one last time. If you're looking for a place to bet the game, try out mybookie.ag. Um, no one gives you more ways to win than mybookie.ag does. They've got the fastest payouts. They've got great lines. And they're totally reliable as a, as a sports book. There are places you can play people that are not reliable. Mybookie.ag is. It's important where you play, almost as important as who you bet on. Uh, I wouldn't be giving you mybookie.ag if it didn't work and they weren't reliable. Here's what you do. You go to mybookie.ag today. If you enter my promo code, KevinDC, they will double your first deposit. All right, they'll activate that offer if you use my promo code. You put in 100 bucks, they'll give you 200 to play with. Understand you're not going to be able to pull it out the same day. All right, you're not going to be able to scam mybookie.ag. You're going to have to wager for a while. All right, but go to mybookie.ag. You can bet the baseball game. You still have half an NFL season left, most of the college football season left. I mean, this is the place to do it. Mybookie.ag today. Use my promo code KevinDC. You play, you win, you get paid. All right. Um, what else did I have? Did you see the um, the Kate Upton tweet last night? Yes. Yes. I mean, whatever. Uh, first of all, I'm a, I was a big fan of course. Kate Upton. I mean, who wasn't? Um, she's, she's probably, 
she's up there as, in terms of the all-time great Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit models. You, you met her at the Super Bowl one year, didn't you? No, no, no. I met Brooklyn Decker. Brooklyn Decker. That's yeah. who it was. And Brooklyn Decker was was uh, was lovely. Um, she was so beautiful in person that Tommy couldn't even speak. And that is a true story that he denies to this day. He's got some ridiculous uh, uh, explanation. All I know is that Tommy and I, when we did the show together for seven plus years, and we would do interviews, typically I would start the interview, Aaron, I would ask a couple of questions, and I'd point to Tommy and I'd say, you got the next two, and we would do it that way. Like, I'd get two, he'd get two, I'd get two, he'd get two, done. Um, When Brooklyn Decker sat down at our table on Radio Row at the Super Bowl, I don't even remember what Super Bowl it was, um, she was sweet. She was very nice. Um, I started out the interview. Uh, she was a big North Carolina fan and she heard me reading an update because the night before or that particular night, night Maryland was going to play Duke, you know, and I said something like, you know, Terps or whatever. And, and she said, uh, you know, we came out of the update and she said, are you rooting for Maryland or Duke? I said, I'm a Maryland person. I hate Duke. And she said, Oh, we got that in common. I'm, I, I'm a North Carolina person. Anyway, Asked her two questions, turned to Tommy, and Tommy waves me off. (laughs) He cannot speak. He waves me off, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like waving me off, and so I continued the interview, and then at the very end of the interview, Tommy like summoned up the courage, and he just sort of spit out something that was completely nonsensical and didn't make much sense, and she's like looking at me like, is he having a stroke? And I'm like, no, I think he's just nervous. And so he claimed that he was looking for information about some guy who was a producer of something that she was involved in and he couldn't remember his name, whatever. (laughs) Anyway, um, back to Kate Upton from last night. So she tweeted out the following after the Trey Turner play. Um, By the way, if you didn't know this, the reason we're bringing Kate Upton up is she's married to Justin Verlander. Um, So anyway, she tweets out after the Trey Turner play. He wasn't within the base path. Those who don't know the rule, and then in capital letters, you have to run inside the two lines. Not sure why the review is taking so long, dot, dot, dot. The responses to Kate Upton came fast and furious, many of them super mean. All right. A lot of them, especially after Rendon went deep on Verlander, you know, a few minutes later, um, you know, a, a, a lot of people were tweeting out, oh, and six, your husband's oh, and six in the World Series. He stinks. You know, the several of them like this one, quote, she bangs a player and now she's a baseball expert. <laughs> Close quote. Uh, those were out of line. Funny, but out of line. Um, but still. About an hour after that tweet, and I'm sure after reading all of her notifications and responses, she tweets the following out, quote, I love talking about sports and reading all of the dumb misogynist comments. It reminds me that women need to keep fighting for equality. It's 2019, but feels like the 1950s. That from Kate Upton. That was her last tweet of the night. I am sure that women like Kate Upton deal with so much BS, social media BS, in-person BS. It, it must not be pleasant a lot of the time. But what she learned last night is what we've all learned to a certain degree. Social media in the midst of a big sporting event that turns controversial becomes a jungle. All right, There is no sympathy for anybody 
anything. People watch. They react with the first thing they think of. It's often dead wrong. It's, a, it's often poorly thought out. It's often inappropriate for most normal people. But it is an anything-goes environment, and you better have some thick skin if you're going to play in it. I mean, I don't have millions of followers like she does. All right, I've got enough followers that if I tweet something out in the midst of a heated game, it doesn't matter what I tweet. Half of it is going to be so inappropriate and negative and in my face. And she got a lot of that last night times a thousand. And I felt sorry for her last night because she gets it anyway and she'll get it for something she'll say or tweet or a commercial or a shoot or whatever. But there is something about a big sporting event on Twitter and what happens when it's a heated game with a controversial moment that, man, it gets ugly in a hurry on social media. And that was one of those nights last night. It was crazy on social media last night. Do you have any advice for Kate Upton, Aaron? Uh, outside of any advice I give general celebrities, which is stay off of social media if you uh. can. But, um, y- you know, she has a point. And, and it does suck that, you know, when women in particular have opinions on sports and those opinions aren't By the way, she was with- right. She was kind of right. right. Now, I mean, she did say two lines, and yeah. there's only one line. Well, I think she was talking about the baseline, and then there's like the, um, yeah. the that outer line, I think is what she was talking about there. But yes, I mean, look, it, it, it's bad for women. Even if, like, even the most intelligent women on sports will get told to get back in the kitchen if they're wrong on sports. That's something that, you know, they have to, they shouldn't have to deal with, but unfortunately they do. And it, it sucks. On this night, October 30th, 1974, uh, Tommy's favorite sporting event of all time, the sporting event that he says he would like to go back, if he could go back and be at one sporting event, he would want to be there for the rumble in the jungle, Ali knocking out George Foreman after rope-a-doping him for seven rounds, one of the more dramatic upsets in sports history. Um, and, uh, one of those unbelievable Ali moments, uh, We'll talk to Tommy about that maybe a little bit tomorrow. Um, The Wizards open up at home tonight. I have not watched one minute of any of the Wizards games. Why? Because they've all been opposite Nats playoff games. I had Scott Brooks on the show yesterday, and I said to him, the Nats win tonight. You know, you're going to be four for four where you're playing games up against the Nats. And he said, I know, but we're rooting for the Nats. They actually play a Houston team tonight, the Rockets, uh, in the opener. And the Wizards have actually been pretty competitive in their first three games. Um, and uh, Hachimura looks pretty good uh, so far. Uh, we're going to save uh, all of our basketball talk for when the World Series is over and maybe even, you know, we'll get into basketball during football season. I mean, we don't have much of a team to root for here. And by the way, college basketball starts next week, which will be exciting this year in the DMV with Georgetown expected to be a tournament team, but more importantly for Aaron and yours truly, Maryland, a preseason top 10 team, number seven in the country, with a chance to really do some damage this year in college hoops. Uh, listen to us on any platform, podcast platform, the one that you're listening to on right now. If they allow you to rate us and review us, please do it. Subscribe also. That helps us. It doesn't cost you a thing. And for those of you, uh, for those of you who know people who want to listen to the show, and don't do it you know, in traditional podcast form. Just tell them they can go to the KevinSheehanShow.com and listen to it 
right there. All right, last thing before we leave, uh, we need to make a prediction on the game tonight. Um, I'll let you go first. Oh, man, you're making me go first. That's off. Um, so you got to look at Granke's postseason history, and you got to look at the fact that, you know, he doesn't tend to do well in big pressure situations. He, you know, has the documented off-field, the anxiety issues and stuff, and this is as big as it can get. You also look at Max, and Max sometimes does get a little amped up, but he also, you know, especially when he, you know, does something to let down the team or whatever, or, you know, in the case he gets injured, he gets a black eye, he comes out and pitches like a beast. I think this is going to be the caliber Max game. I think he is going to be a little amped up at one inning. I'm calling a 6-3 Nationals win. I am leaning Nationals to not with the same confidence level of last night. In fact, really, to be honest with you, I think I, I could go either way tonight. Um, Granke has pitched better at home in this postseason than on the road. Um, but he's not been a great postseason pitcher. And the truth of the matter is in Game 3 in Washington – even though he ultimately only let up one earned run in four and two-thirds, he had he was in trouble a lot in that game. Uh, they got to him. They just didn't close on him in game three. Um, so that gives me confidence that they can do it um, and that they can generate some offense on Granke. I just don't know if I feel as confident in the pitching tonight like I did last night. First of all, even if Max were 100% healthy, I don't have the same level of confidence in him that I do in Strasburg. I think Strasburg's a better big game pitcher, which is why I thought he should have started the wild card game against Milwaukee. Uh, but I'll lean Nats because ultimately um, they still, with the combination of Scherzer, Corbin, and Sanchez, should be better off than the Astros with Granky, but it wouldn't surprise me if they lost tonight. I'll pick them. I'll pick them. What did you say? Six to three, six, three. I'll go. Uh, I'll go five, four in 11. Oh, don't do that to us. <laughs> don't do that. Could, <laughs> can you be imagine an extra inning? Game five, seven? four, 11 innings with, for the second time in the postseason, Howie Kendrick delivering big. He comes through with an RBI single in the top of the 11th, and then somehow, someway, Doolittle hasn't been used yet, maybe. Um, and he comes in, and he gets the save in the bottom of the 11th inning. How about this? Wait, I, I, That's probably I, not possible. No, not Doolittle possible. would have been used at that point. I, I I, Strasburg comes in for the save. That's even better. That's even better. All right, uh, enjoy the game tonight. Back tomorrow. Uh, Have a great day.